Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, fellas. Not trying to be... We are live not streaming. Not trying to be Brett Favre out here. <laughs> it is 10.30 a.m. Tuesday on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. It's Daylight Savings Zone. So who knows? Who knows what it is over the rest of the world? It's Value after hours, during hours. What do you all know about that? It doesn't make any sense. I grant you that. We might have to change the name at some point. But it's point. provocative. Gets the people Gets going. Gets the people That's going. Right. Uh, What's happening, fellas? There's a little bit of volatility around. This is looking This is looking realish. Well, a big bounce today, of course. Sure. Yeah. I liked your episode last week. Uh, I don't know. Anyone that's looking for my usual optimism can go somewhere else. <laughs> uh oh. Are you feeling? Are you feeling? What, what do you think? Where are we? What inning? I've never, I've never been this bearish in my life. Wow. Let's let's unpack that. That's that's a good topic. Uh, I I just we don't have to do it right, have, right now. I mean, we got a no, whole show. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we whatever. could. I don't, I don't mind. Let's do it now. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Have we got somebody in Cologne, uh, Quebec? Sorry, dude. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, look, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out and unpack what happened. Like, look, you know, I was always in camp transitory on the inflation side. Um, I think I, I underestimated in the beginning of Russia, Ukraine, what, um, like I did not foresee, uh, Ukraine capturing people's hearts and the West being this united in sanctions. And I think if you're interested at all, you know, to open up like the, um, you know, how much, how much potash, for example, Russia makes and how much oil Russia exports, this commodity environment could be super messed up for a long time. And then you layer on China, COVID 2022. Uh, I think this is the hardest macro environment I've ever seen. And I don't think that like, you know, macro is the way that I'd be paid. Um, But COVID 2020 was pretty easy because we all had the same risk that we were staring at. This is really wonky to me, and uh, I, I'm not confident. That, I mean, look, three years of sustained inflation, food shortages, global dislocations, um, you know, fine. The leading economic indicators are strong in America. Household net worth is strong. The higher end of America is, is doing fine. The people on the margin are about to just get waxed. Um, and, you know, $5.50 gas hasn't really come through yet. Uh, I'm sure America will be able to procure food, but it's going to be more expensive. Emerging markets, I, I feel horrible for. Um, I mean, coming out of the back of COVID and, and now you just destroy them with food inflation. I don't know. This this has risk written all over it to me. Other than that, how is the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> now, the only thing that matters is, okay, well, what are the prices? I mean, these, these are first-order thoughts that I'm having, but um, I am not a dip buyer. And, you know, maybe that cost me money or whatever down the road. But, uh, I, you know, 2018, I thought that was easy. Late 2015, I thought that was pretty easy. Uh, this one, I'm not sure. Where are you, JT? You're pretty bearish. Uh, well, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I guess like everybody, I'm not as bearish about the companies I own. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of falls under, filed out under no duh. But um yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible to imagine a messed up supply chain that's still not unfurled from COVID. And then you layer on commodity shortages and higher prices for everything. Um, and then the time that it takes 
for supply to get online to match those high prices. It could just be take time and it'd be messy along the way, um, which boy, it makes it tough to bet a profit margin expansion for anyone <laughs> at this point. Um, you know, top line kind of hard to imagine similar of the last decades uh, being more than that. Um, I, I don't know, but then at the well, same I think time, it'll accelerate, of- but not in real terms. Well, okay. That's fair. Um, I actually think heavily levered industries with any type of pricing power are going to win relatively. Well, I mean, if you think flight, your debt away. Yeah. That's one of the solutions. I I don't have the answer, man. I'm still working on this. It does feel like uh, we may be on the other side of kind of peak globalization for a while. And maybe we're going backwards on that front, which then that's, that's inflationary in its own right. Um, You know, if you bifurcate the world into different markets and some people are not trading with other people, that's stuff is just going to cost more. Like that's just how, how it works. So again, the pretty hard to be bullish on profit margins from here. And like, I wouldn't be surprised if we're entering a earnings recession coming up um which makes prices feel like they kind of have to come in some maybe so i don't know i mean it's it's definitely it's not a bubbly effervescent period that's for sure there's a comment Um, here from john battle which this is kind of interesting i have seen this phenomenon too walked into the grocery store the other day and noticed a sign out front for eight positions they're hiring for i doubt we will have a recession while they're having a labor shortage yeah i yeah i mean maybe well what if you can't move as much product like what if unit volumes are pinched because of labor shortages should get pricing power in that environment i don't necessarily agree with the proposition that you can't have a recession while you're having a labor shortage i'm just wondering about the labor shortage what's the i mean what is all that about some of some of it, from my understanding, is that people are still collecting a ton of unemployment, and I think some of it uh, is, you know, probably people that made it through COVID that were later on in years retired. Um, we've had, I don't think it's a stretch to say Trump wasn't pro-immigration, so that's four years of policy that was. But I don't know what the data says. Maybe we were still, maybe it was the highest immigration that we've ever had. I have no idea, but I, I would. That would not be my null hypothesis. It's a very, very strange. I just don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's something wrong with the data, if it's something, if there's some really odd phenomenon going on. Because it seems like things are really expensive, so you need a lot of money to be to be buying stuff. So I, I don't, I, I just can't see that all those payments are covering it. I don't know. Are the payments still going on? I thought that it all rolled off. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was trying to hire labor and he said unemployment benefits were one of the things that uh, he was struggling with. I mean, dude, I just, I, I run people out of my grandma's house. I, I manage her healthcare. Uh, that's probably like my primary job. I mean, I just gave people, you know, a $7 bump on 20 bucks an hour. So that's not nothing for them. Yeah. I, I, I saw like a 30% I, I, raise. Yeah, well, I'm looking at fucking food and gas, and these people are keeping my grandma alive. I need them to be happy. I I've certainly s- don't want to be over there every day. <laughs> I've, I forget I mean, which I state it was. One of the states has got like the minimum wage is seven dollars twenty-five, and you got gas at whatever it is four dollars fifty at that point. When I saw this this tweet, mm. that makes it tough. Got to work half an hour to buy your gas. Forty-five minutes to buy a yeah. tank of gas or buy a gallon of gas. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I do think like the other side of this is that a lot of prices have come in a lot, um, you know, much more than the index. Um, so, yeah, that's know, another it's all weird a matter thing. what odds. The index just doesn't seem to tell the story of what's going on. There's a, I've got this, one of the topics that I've got today, I've got a few. Um, I, I, I looked at the, because um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't actually think this is a good instrument to trade with. I'm just kind of fascinated by the, uh, the fear and greed index. So I've been looking for alternatives to the fear and greed index that have been around for a little bit longer. So the um, the bull minus bears. I think this is the 
Independent Investors, American Independent Investors yeah, Association. AAII. This goes back to 1969. And from like 1969 to even the mid 1990s, you got many, many more, much more bearish readings than we've seen recently. And through the 70s was just was just a decade of really deep, like much more bearish than we're seeing today. So previously, the the idea has been that when you see that bearish reading, that's a pretty good opportunity, like to get long as a contrarian indicator. But that would not have worked in the 70s. You've been way too bearish for way too long. I mean, sorry, you'd have been you'd have been bullish at the. Yeah, it would have taken a while for that to. You got the signal out. for ten years. Yeah. yeah what does it time. What does it say now? It's actually still uh, in slightly positive territory. It's actually still slightly bearish. It's 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 careening towards zero, which would be, um, you know, flat. But it's it's fallen from very very bullish. It's been increasingly bullish since the early nineteen nineties. 2008 crash was quite deep, but other than that, I'll post this chart, but it's, we've got a long way to go before we bottom here. And then even then, if it's like a 1970s style stagflation type environment, then it could be that way for a decade. I actually think in, in a weird kind of sick way, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too gleeful about this, but it might be very good for, for value guys, it might be very good for deep value guys, like lower prices, more sort of, um, Commodity inflation is probably better for deep value, but you know, I I don't know in, in real terms whether that's a, a good thing or not. I guess I think it kind of depends on what the construction of the basket is. Um, like I doubt commodity companies are still deep value. Maybe, maybe. Well, they are right now. I mean, there's just they're all yeah, maybe. Like ridiculously low multiples for pretty high returns, for pretty high ROICs, and, and the. It's because everybody's been conditioned for the last decade that you don't want to touch any of those cyclicals because there's no floor. And I've said that before too. Yeah. But at some point, like they're going to start running like software. They're going to look like software because they're going to make so much money. I mean, I don't know if yeah. that's necessarily it's just a matter whether be. or not people trust it. I mean, at some point, if it, if it persists, it doesn't matter whether you trust it or not. Like it'll just take off. Yeah, they're going to get hit with labor inflation. And to the extent that you're like a gold miner, your steel is going to go through the roof and your maintenance capex is going to have to increase. Like, it's not all gravy, but uh, yes, I don't disagree. That's right. I agree with that. Isn't that annoying? Margins never (laughs) stay where you are. And then they start doing silly things. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, they're kind of shitty businesses, which is, but I mean, I'll tell you, like, (laughs) A I lot of them, a lot of them don't have shareholder bases that have any interest in expanding. Yeah, well, um, that'll, that'll change once it all gets going, right? But did you see AMC yeah. has bought itself a gold mine? Got to be the craziest I did see thing. That. What are they doing? I don't know, man. Uh, I uh, I'm inclined to actually ask that CEO on my podcast to ask him that exact question. Yeah, I mean they have a they have a shareholder base. That what are you doing very- here? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he might have an answer. They have a shareholder base that reminds me a lot of MicroStrategy's shareholder base. So uh, maybe that's the game he's playing. What's the what's the share, what's the defining characteristic of the shareholder base? Well, they're on these. It's cultish. Yeah, they're they. I mean, at least a subset of them. I'm sure it's not the institutional capital, but you know, the retail apes or whatever. They're the ones that are on spaces bitching about the system all the time. Uh, I don't know. I could see appealing to them through some sort of gold hedge. I don't know that a junior miner is the safest way to play it, but it's probably the one with the most torque. Yeah, I guess you're just giving the shareholders what they want. I have no idea. That's why I want to ask him. <laughs> Yikes. All right, you know, well. it's like, it, it's one thing if, um, you know, if you're in a hold co or an investment company, I would see a scenario like, uh, I'd be like, okay, I guess that makes sense. It's an allocation decision. But like this guy made all his money in leisure and travel companies, right? Like Royal Caribbean and Vail. So I, why I mean, not go that direction? Like all that stuff's still pretty beaten up. I mean, well, I don't that's know. That's a question for the pod. Beaten up. Yeah. But they, yeah, that's that's kind of, I mean, why a junior gold miner? So, Toby, to go back to your uh, AAII sentiment, the does the ARC inflows still 
kind of factor into that in your mind at all as you're sort of messing around with this stuff? Well, I saw this morning Bailey Gifford has seen net outflows and uh, uh, another one of those, uh, Linsel Train has also seen net outflows. Mm. Yeah, are continuing to see people are still aggressively buying the dip out there in tech, I guess, or in, in, I mean, it makes sense. If you believe in Kathy's thesis, then it is just How a lot does, cheaper than it was before. How do those stocks go down with ARC flowing in? I mean, I guess it's just not a big enough proportion of their, of that base, but man, that would terrify me if I was long those stocks. What happens if her bid goes away? Holy shit. That's a snake. Go away. All right. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know how that, I mean, and depending on the size of them, I mean, we've seen that in the past, right? Where I think it was Janice that this happened a lot where some smaller stuff that they were buying just created its own illusion of prosperity. I think that's so all this said. All this said, I think like European growth or uh, European small uh, Chinese ADR is actually starting to look interesting uh you know i i would argue there's some names in hyper growth SaaS that probably make a lot of sense i wish i knew which ones i mean there is there is definitely opportunity out there but i don't know man i get nervous when this kind of political risk is on the table because i think it's like real actual risk but markets don't usually top on that yeah there's um I mean, it's very, very hard. Let's put it to this way: this isn't euphoria, right? Yeah, I think we can agree on that. No, it's hard to tell if it's. Well, I mean, always that that fear or greed has to be relative, to also of what's happening in the world, right? So, yeah. if it's if you're still like there's fear, but like you're still underestimating how bad it can get, sort of as a group, then. Well, you're, you're sort of missing the boat still, I think. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, melt up and, and what inning are we in? That was closer to euphoria than anything. Right. So on the back end of euphoria cracking, uh, you don't still need euphoria. And I, I don't think despair is out there by any stretch. So well, it's going to be interesting. Like, on that AAII uh, index, we're not even bearish yet. We're just, we're, we're not even neutral yet. We're still bullish. That's funny because the I, I guess the fear and greed indicator is much more like that's a daily kind of bid. And I, this the chart is a little bit old, the one that I was talking about then. That 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 is sub twenty, and it's been sub twenty, which has traditionally been a you know hasn't been sub twenty much over the last sort of decade. So or since the that data starts, so that's pretty bearish for for the fear and greed indicator. But, you know, if you look at that, that 70s run was just, it, it'll just be the inverse of what we've seen for the last decade. It'll just be mostly bearish. And every now and again, it'll be flicking into bullish. Like that, that actually kind of makes sense to me that it would look that way. Yeah, I think maybe. I mean, if I wanted to argue the other side, I'd say like, you know, even Roku bulls are saying, I think it'll be higher, but you can't buy it yet. Uh, that to me seems bottomy. Um there's there's like a lot of there's a lot of things that I think people say you can't touch, but they are pretty good businesses that with a long enough time horizon, I think probably make a lot of sense. Um, but I don't know, man. Uh, I think I, the thing about those growth stocks, and, and we've said this in the past, is, uh, you know, the nifty 50 may have outperformed from uh, cycle to cycle, but. Uh, year five into holding that, you better really believe. Oh, you did eighty five percent or something at that point. Yeah, because every single person's going to ask you about margin structure and how do you know that it's on the come and do you actually believe this? And yeah, there's just uh, I think a lot of these stocks are in this pocket where uh, a lot of the growth guys are trading accelerating decelerating growth, and the value guys aren't anywhere near touching them. So who's left to buy? Uh, that said, maybe this is a bottom and I'm a contra. Wouldn't it shock me? I've been wrong for a year. I tend to agree with that. I, I think that some of those things 
are getting interesting. Like they're starting to look interesting. They're not yet where I would buy them, but they're, I think that there's some of that stuff is going to come in. I mean, I, if it comes in, I wouldn't. I like I like some of it. What do you guys think about? Um, do you think that this is a stagflationary environment? Like, is that what we're going into? Oh, hundred percent. What hundred percent? What's the thesis on that? Like, what? Well, commodities and supply chains are fucked. All right. So How do you the, grow? What's the definition of stagflationary? It's like uh, wages and salaries just don't keep up with CPR, right? Without keep up with inflation. I think it's inflation plus uh, recession. Inflation plus recession. Yeah. It's economic okay. recession well, or, or plus stagnant growth. Okay. Inflation. Well, anything that's not growing, they call a recession. That said, that said, uh, like the New York Fed, their consumer sentiment survey, uh, people are expecting to spend 6% more and they're expecting 6% inflation. So maybe uh, there's just no real growth. Um, household wealth is very good. The high income earners are doing very well. Balance sheets are in great mark shape. To market wealth? Is that... Mark to well, I mean, mark dude, to unicorn own, private equity. <laughs> it, well, if you own real estate, for instance, which is most people's savings mechanism, and you locked in a thirty-year fixed mortgage, and inflation hits, you just made a shit ton of levered ma- money. And by the way, a lot of people refied out and can afford the fixed debt, so now they're probably got even a more levered stub on the real estate. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm very confused right now. So I found a I found a good uh, there's a good write up uh, stuck in the middle, Mister Blonde. Uh, don't know much about Mister Blonde, sorry. I've only just seen this write up. I kind of enjoyed it. Did a little discussion on this is from his Substack or her Substack. Seventies uh, are most commonly cited as the stagflation market playbook, and so he's done this little um, back test to sort of see what what works through those periods of time. So this is just in a style factor takeaway. Okay. Um, similar amount of time spent in stagflation mode, 32% of the time between 1985 to 2019. Best sector neutral style factors for stagflation are profitability, growth and momentum, and current value. Best to avoid high risk and deep value, which I was a little bit surprised by. Um, deep value is asset heavy on average, man. That's what I'm saying. I yeah, bet that makes portfolio- sense. Well, hang on, wait. I bet the theoretical portfolio that you and I have talked about in the past that you might implement. I bet that those kind of value names, I think, because they're generally capital light, I think could make more sense. The, he makes a distinction here between deep value and current value. Have you ever heard that? I'm going to reveal how little I know here, but deep value and current Dude, if value. if you haven't, I haven't. <laughs> current value or deep value? Yeah, that's the distinction. Current value and deep value. Not an ex- Not an expression I've heard of before, but Anyway, I don't know. I don't know everything evidently about that stuff. So just take, take it. Uh, I mean, I could see deep value being past value and I could see growth being more future value. I don't know, but that doesn't, I don't identify those terms either. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 uh, the strategy was long defensive factors, profitability, current value, dividend yield, short risk factors, beta size leverage historically performs quite well and returns for growth over value improve after trading poorly during the reflation regime. So maybe so, another yeah. way to slice this would be what was Buffett doing in the seventies? Well, I remember that he, he, he I quotes have a follow up to this, by the way, once we're done, he quotes that line. Uh, well, maybe I've quoted it before, but he talks about, you know, gold for all of the effort that they put in gold does just as well as Berkshire did for that period. I forget the exact period now, but that was 70s yeah something like uh 65 to 82 or something like that and he makes the point in there and somebody else has made the point in the comments as well that um yeah if you and this is this might be the deep value issue that you have to if you're reinvesting in heavy assets the whole way through the heavy assets are more expensive each time you go back to buy what i said yeah no no no. someone smart said that (laughs) you you did (laughs) you did i'm I'm not disputing that someone just i'm just kidding Someone got in early in the comments, and so I just want to give them a shout. I, and now I can't remember their name, but 
might have been Warbuffer. Sorry, Will, whoever it was. William Brewster. I saw it on. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not looking William at anymore because my ADD ruined my ability to participate on this show and look in the comments. So I have I have amended my uh, procedure. I I I think that the uh, the demonstration of the uh, oh, Bill. No, he's back. Really? You're all right. Am a I demonstration? Here? Yep, you are. Yeah, no, I was, I was, you know, what, what we did as the West to Russia makes me wonder if gold becomes a more desired asset for sovereigns. Mm. Well, well, another yeah. argument for that would also be, uh, and I'm like way out of my depth here talking about this kind of stuff, but if the demand for dollars, let's say that, that oil is priced in something other than dollars for some markets and that there's less transactions happening in dollars because people don't want to be sanctioned. And, uh, you know, gold is kind of a next likely alternative of something that they might want to use as a currency base instead. Yeah. Macro stuff. Macro um, stuff. Way over my skis. <laughs> so, so one thing that I that I wanted to say is like I I think that uh, Charlie's answer and why I think things like Costco trade where they do is Charlie's answer would probably be just own Costco. In mm. any scenario, it's going to deliver more value to its customers. Let's say inflation runs through, you know. Maybe it gives them the chance to raise the fee of the membership a little bit more than inflation. They're saving people money. So like on a free cash flow yield basis, uh, maybe Costco doesn't make sense from a certainty of actual return of like closer to a real 2% or whatever out of the gate that grows, Costco makes sense. And that, that's Costco, where- I, Costco's you know. like a real tip, right? Yeah. Like it's- it's an inflation protected treasury like return. Yeah. Maybe. Um JC, you got you got you got some veggies? Always. This one is uh titled The Surrender Experiment. And it's it was a book recommendation from friend of the show, Rishi, who uh, after we talked about this, I, uh, anything smart that I say in the next two minutes is basically I'm just stealing whatever Rishi said. <laughs> uh, so there's this book called The Surrender Experiment by this guy named Michael A. Singer. And if you Google him, it'll come up with pictures of him with Tony Robbins and Oprah sitting on the couch, uh, hanging out. And but his he wrote this book called The Surrender Experiment, and it's basically kind of an autobiography but it talks about like his life and the increasingly just sort of surrendering to the flow of the universe of where he's supposed to be, what he's supposed to be working on and not trying to control things as much. Very um, Taoist. It is very Taoist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, please feel free to chime in with extra goodies on this, uh, you guys, as we, as we work through it, but um, just like a little of a backstory of this guy, it's the 1970s and he's like kind of this hippie guy, you know, in his early twenties and he, is living in Florida and he's a, a grad school student uh, studying econ, working on his master's. And uh, he has a spiritual awakening uh, and he ends up kind of going into seclusion and basically like meditating and doing yoga all the time, you know, multiple sessions a day and just kind of wanting to be alone with his thoughts. And, um, you know, he's still going to classes and, and teaching actually and, and uh, finishing that, but he, he, gets a little bit of money. I think it was an inheritance and he buys a little bit of land in this like forest area in Florida, which I didn't realize there were forests, but I don't know, Bill, you could probably tell me more about how, how dumb I am for thinking that. I thought the it was or all... something like that. Does it count as a forest? Well, but I don't, uh, I don't know. Yeah. That's, isn't that swamp? I'm not sure where the, I think there were is. forests. All right. Maybe it's more in the north. In the middle. So he, no one goes to the middle of what, the state. St. Yeah. Joe's had, had like some timber, didn't it? That was one of the Oh yeah, okay. Well, I think go. it was. It started out as a timber miner, something like Tim, timber timber grower. Has that all worked? So he gets this uh, little plot of land, and he, him, and a friend build a house on it. And so people kind of like this little house that he builds, and they ask if they might be able to build a house for them on their little piece of land. And so he's like, okay. And before he knows it, he's got this little housing company that's you know, building houses, and 
he just takes any like he's living on the cheapest life that you could imagine, basically just meditating all day and eating a really simple diet. And, you know, there's no extravagance and any of the extra money that comes in, it kind of gathers up. And then as a parcel of land that's adjacent to his becomes available, he'll just he just buys it. Uh, and <clears throat> and then, you know, he ends up actually building this. Uh, it's called the, the oh shoot Temple of the Universe. And it's basically just like a totally open, non-denominational uh, place to come and sort of be one with the universe, whatever your, you know, your creed or, or religion. And uh, so then let's fast forward a little bit. It's 1978 and he's like wandering into a radio shack and he happens to see this computer there and he's just intrigued by it. He buys it and takes it home and, and, and starts playing around with it. And he gets into coding and he builds for himself for the little housing company, this like an accounting software, basically, and uh, tells the Radio Shack manager about it when he's back in there. And like the manager asks, well, hey, I, like I have people coming all the time and asking, can I send them to you to like build stuff for them, like software? He's like, well, okay. So he, he does that. And uh, eventually someone from a doctor's office gets a hold of him and he builds this software package for them that is turns into, uh, it's basically like practice management, billing, all that stuff for doctor's offices. It, and it, it actually like totally takes off and it becomes this company called the medical manager company. And it, be, it goes public eventually in 2000 WebMD purchases it for like $5 billion. <laughs> uh, and then, so all along this path, like each story is about the universe for him, like, you know, someone showing up in his life and him like recognizing, Oh, this was the, I, this is the person that I needed for sort of unlock the next thing. I don't know what's coming exactly, but I'm surrendering to whatever it is and I'm just going to do my best with what's given to me. Um, so fast forward a little bit in 2003, the FBI raids all of their offices and takes like all the hard drives, every piece of paper out of the office, uh, just totally like seizes everything. And they, they charged all of the top management in this company with, with securities fraud. And, you know, there's, there's this trial that happens. There's millions of documents and emails to sort through in discovery. Uh, Singer says that it was one of the VPs they found out was embezzling and, uh, and getting kickbacks as part of like the sales process. And when they got busted, they basically said that they were told to do that by the management and like flipped to the FBI and tried to like basically send everyone above him upriver. Toby, you had a question? No, I was just, that's, that's bad news. Yeah. Well, then it gets really hard to kind of defend yourself because it's like, you know, like this person clearly did these things, but how do you establish whether it was management told them to do it or not? Right. And it ends up costing the, to defend all of this top management, like $190 million in legal oh. fees. It drags out until finally 2010. This is like seven years after indictment, 2010, they finally are acquitted uh, and they drop all the charges and basically the DOJ had uh, been totally kind of pushing too hard for this, I think, trying to make a name for the self or something, one of the people there. Um, but so again, like another thing of like just having to surrender and, you know, basically like he felt like the constitution that was set up, you know, 200 years ago at the time or whatever, uh, had been the, had protected him in this case. Uh, so in general, the whole thing is about like surrendering to, to the universe and to, uh, to life's flows. And, and he says that surrender taught me to willingly participate in life's dance with a quiet mind and an open heart. And so you, know, you think about this, like, you know, quieting the mind, suppressing and overcoming the ego, which is a big part of what he's working on. And then, you know, surrendering to really like face reality, whatever it is. And it, one of the things that's really admirable about what I feel like what, how he went about life was that he, when he was working on something that, that came across his desk, he said like that he would just throw himself into it a hundred percent and focus on it. And it reminds me of Charlie Munger's, like he says that the best source of new business is, is doing the work on your desk. Um, so just, and he felt, he felt like that the universe had given him an opportunity to work on this project and it was up to him to do the best job that he could with it instead of, trying to, you know, have too much attachment to even, you know, like, oh, why is it this way? Or why is it that way? Um, letting some of those, just recognizing those vicissitudes of life are going to happen and you have to just roll with them, recognize reality, do the best that you can, but surrender that you don't have control over everything. And I think, you know, some of the investment uh, takeaways from that are kind of obvious that, 
you know, we don't have control over a lot of things. We don't have control over all this macro stuff that we've been talking about for the last half hour. Uh, we have to surrender to that a little bit and just recognize reality, put our egos away of, of thinking that we could maybe even untangle some of this stuff because it's just so hard, right? Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was a, kind of maybe a good good thing to talk about today when the world is especially noisy with all the things that are happening and putting some of our own egos away uh, and just being reminded that sometimes we have to surrender a little bit to you know, follow our best process, do the work on our desk, do the best that we can and kind of let the chips fall where they may. I like it. I like the approach. I think one of the things that we've been talking about is how good value is usually at sort of leading the way. If you're finding something that's bombed out and undervalued, it's probably a good time to be spending some time in the sector. And then, uh, you know, wind forward two or three years, sometimes they they you come really rolling back. smart, like you like were prescient about something, how yeah, the world like, was going to change. But like macro kind of like you, you're a good macro investor just by being a value guy looking at stuff that's and the only reason you're there is because it's undervalued, not because you've got any particular view about the future. It's just that 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 seems to be the way that the cycle works, that when the capital drains away from something, that's a good time to go and look at it. And then as the capital comes back in, you, 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 you're, a, you're a vendor and you're moving on to the next thing. Yeah, I think that's. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'd uh, I'd like to know that. Uh, I guess historically, it seems to me that quality is the place to be in the beginning of a downturn, and value is what you want to buy on the back end. Like I, uh, I don't know. I quality in Poland, I think right now is probably a pretty good idea. Because shit, if Poland gets attacked, it's not going to matter what stocks you own. Uh, I don't know. The only thing I don't like about this attitude is I think some people take it too far and they're like, just surrender. And maybe I'm just talking about my own personal life and what people around me tell me. But uh, seems like a little too pacifist for my liking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I struggle with that a little bit, too, because like you can... You know, you there's this narrative often I think that gets assigned of like, you know, grinding it out and like grab the bull by the horns and seize the day and all these different cliches that we would probably all think would be precursors of success, right? Um, but I don't know. Like I think that can also maybe balance is the answer, like always, uh, and finding that middle path. Well, I think you're going to do well where you where you have an particular interest in something so you have more interest in something than something somebody else does your relative interest is high because that allows you to do it more and it for sucks. longer yeah you can sort of push through like the the bit that we kind of skidded over there is the part where he said like this guy owns a, a house out in the middle of nowhere and he goes and buys a computer and then teaches himself the code and then codes up that thing like that that's a pretty big leap to have done that and that requires some sort of intense study intense concentration focus for an extended period of time to teach yourself how to code in that old, this is old coding too. That, and then to turn that into some software package that, you know, functioned reasonably well, like that's quite a big leap. So he had like that advantage. So that's when I, when I hear it, that's the way that I interpret it. You just, your interest is directed somewhere where you're, and you, you, you keep on working on that, whether you uh, ultimately make money out of it. You know, Paul Graham calls it the, the, the bus ticket collector kind of phenomenon where mm -hmm. there are guys out there collecting bus tickets and um, they do it because they're interested in it. They're not trying to make money out of it. Like that's the, the, the analogy that he gives, but there are lots of other advantages of that. Like I feel a bit bad. I've been sort of shitting on NFTs here for a little while, but I do think that NFTs will have a great deal of utility at some point. I'm just sort of laughing at the spending large amounts of money on, on the JPEGs, but you know, it's entirely possible. If someone digs into NFTs, they'll find some use case for it and it'll, it'll, it'll take off and be, and be huge. So that's, that's why I interpret it. Yeah. I think that that is not to be missed that, that hard work. It's not surrender and then go, you know, sit on the couch and watch Netflix. That was, I don't think was what uh, was happening there. And, and I think his isolation and insulation is probably led to a lot of the success because it allowed him to have that extreme focus on what he was working on. Ignore the FOMO. This is, this is a, probably a good segue. The, the, um, the area that's most bombed out at the moment, or the, probably the area that's looking the most scary is Chinese tech, right? Particularly 
ADRs in the US. I mean, literally, where they're American <laughs> depository receipts. Hey. <laughs> The, the Chinese <laughs> listings in the in, in America. So let's talk about Alibaba. Is, is, I thought those were the Armenian <laughs> deposit receipts. I, I don't think that the Alibaba thesis has changed at all. Right? I, I, I think it's still it's a multi-bagger or it's a zero. And you just have to kind of come up with your... Position size for that. Yeah, I think so. Do you have, what, what's your, have you looked at any of the Chinese tech? What do you, what do you think? I mean, just breathtaking price drops in the last even this month i mean you <laughs> you have to go like if you go digging through like i was looking at some etfs earlier and uh you know a lot of times they're quoted they'll quote statistics that are summary statistics for for the underlying within the etf and you know even if they are were at like if they're valuations and they're from even the end of february you have to like do some math to adjust them because they've been so bombed in even the last two weeks. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things there. I'm not exactly sure what the right answer is, but um, I, I think that there's should probably be digging around at least if you're, if you're interested in that kind of thing. What's the, what's the, cause we, we've discussed this previously where you said it was a, it was like an ADR issue rather than a, uh, a Chinese tech issue. Is so that still the case? Well, here's my layman's understanding, and I'm probably again way over my skis. But the so there's this accounting rule that the U.S. has now, where I think it's like a three-year window, maybe two, if some new legislation comes through, that where Chinese companies have to show their audited books for basically like disclosure to American investors. Chinese don't want to do that. Americans want them to do that. So the question would be then, well, what happens? And if you, and America's saying, if you don't do it, then we're going to delist you. And so what happens if you get delisted? So the ADR is the one that's closest probably to the US version. Um, and then of course, now you can get into like the VIE structures and a lot of gray area there as to like, well, what rights do you actually have? What do you actually own? I mean, that, that people go round and round with that. Um, but Just then, assume zero. Okay. You can, I guess you can assume zero. Um, I mean, look at Russia, right? If, if the conflict, the idea that these are zeros, I think rests on some sort of geopolitical assumption. So like, if there's conflict, you don't own anything. They're just going to tell you, fuck you. Like we did to Russia. Sure. So sanctions that then they say, well, write those, we're writing those to zero and we're freezing at first. And then we're basically writing it to zero. So then you have the, the question of, which I think my understanding is, is that those ADRs can be converted into the Hong Kong exchange shares, which then now you're kind of out of the problem of the American regulatory environment. Um, and then once you're there, there's some, supposedly some connection between uh, mainland China and Hong Kong, this HK, HK Connect, I think it's called. And then that is supposed to allow interoperability between those two exchanges much more and then kind of a deeper pool of potential investors. So it's, I guess the long answer is who really knows exactly. Uh, and there is, it is fraught with that risk that Bill just mentioned um, that you could just be frozen and turned into a zero. So I guess the question you kind of have to ask yourself is how much of your portfolio would you be willing to take a zero on? And you, you're okay with that. Um, and if that's and it, then trying to back into what do you think the probability of that zero is multiplied by what do you if it, it doesn't happen, what do you think the upside is? And then try to, you know, Kelly bet yourself somewhere into a reasonable idea. Yeah, I think that the you, you, you'll go cross side trying to figure out the likelihood of either outcome. I think you just got to coin flip. <laughs> yeah, like I think you just got to assume it's a zero and um, and it's how much you can afford to lose in it. Which is like it's it's like option sizing. Any option that expires out of the money, you could size it like that. But then some people have pointed out in the comments, and I sort of feel this way a little bit too. Look, it is it is a lot to to be taking on that risk at the moment when there are there are plenty of uh, Western countries that developed nations that have good rules of law with cheap stuff floating around, and uh, the US is one of them. I don't think they're that cheap though, relative to some of these. Chinese companies. Yeah, that's true. 
but it is that problem of the 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 Bayesian updated stack of Swiss cheese where you have to get the pencil through every single like there has to be the hole for every single one of these and they're all probabilities that start stacking up on top of each other right um so it could be it might be tough yeah i still think it's like i think a- the thing about the thing about if, if it is a true assumption about it being geopolitical risk that people are worried about uh something that i've heard that i need to put data to but is like what percentage of commodities right now are owned by china and if we really get into some sort of geopolitical conflict, like, I just don't think your U.S. stocks are safe either. Like, I really don't. Uh, you know, now, if China just unilaterally, for some reason, says, well, U.S. holders can't own these ADRs, then I guess that's sort of a different uh, scenario. But I don't see what's in their incentives to do that. Um, I don't know. Well, imagine this scenario where we keep all these sanctions on Russia and then they still have stuff to sell and output, but they don't have as many buyers for it, except maybe China wants to be a buyer. And now China is getting all this stuff at a lower than market price, like all these commodities to run their economy at much lower market prices than all the rest of the competition has to pay for kind of non-sanctioned goods. We just advantaged China in a major way against, and we're supposed to be competing on a global platform with them. Like this stuff is so interconnected. I think it's really hard not to like cut your nose off to spite your face in this. Well, I saw that India has has agreed to buy some, or, or was talking about buying some oil from Russia because it's so deeply discounted. China will too. They, I mean, they have to. Like it would be stupid for them not to. Yeah. Tough game. Very, very complicated. <laughs> well, that's kind of so. So, uh, we well, so McMurtry told me to read um, the the Price of Peace, um, and I've been I've been working on it this morning, and a lot of it, you know, the the part that I'm at is sort of like after World War One, um, you know, how people carved up uh, the interests of nations. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I think um, it'll be interesting to see if we're in a similar period, you know, looking back 10 years. I, I have no idea. But as this I said, feel- I'm uh, not as optimistic as usual. This feels more Cold Warish to me, just that there's, there's not going to be anybody who's dictating terms to the other. It's both sides are just going to become, you know, isolated from the other. And there'll be this schism in the world. And I think what we're fighting about now is where that line's going to be. That's what the war in Ukraine is about whether that we know which where the dividing line is between the east and the west and then they'll be balkanized and they won't trade with each other much or or we won't know about it so in that scenario like it does it actually makes me it actually makes me want to be more of a i want to be sort of more localized in the west like i know that i'm going to get my money back in the west you when you say they're not safe you just mean like the valuations could get crushed here that's that's absolutely right like i I expect that's probably what's going to happen you just get but i'm a Naturally, a bearish guy, but I think we're going to get, we're going to be see a real smash up somewhere through here at some point. It'll be absolutely chaotic, but good businesses will still be good businesses. They'll it, they'll grow if, over time. Uh, I was just thinking, like, how would you get long black markets? And that's probably <laughs> like, is that a Bitcoin argument today? I don't know. The dollar is used for a lot of drugs. Um, I, uh, I I think. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think what Charlie would maybe say uh, is that it just doesn't, the pain of China and the U.S. splitting into that kind of uh, fraction is too great. Um, but it may happen. I don't know. I mean, you saw like China, what did they say yesterday? They said that they they proposed that the U.S. and China both stop providing weapons to uh people in Russia and Ukraine. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I think that's why, uh, I think that's a decent amount of why these ADRs are trading off. Cause I think they're risks that, you know, people perceive to be remote and you got to adjust your probabilities up. Speaking of Charlie, do we have, has anybody figured out of the price that is would trigger a margin call from, for well, Boba? I saw what Buffer has said that they've got a donut on the equity at the moment. 
but on the net equity. So on the net position, it's a donut. Okay. You, do you mean, is there a price where he gets called? Yeah. Where's, is there a price for the shoulder tap? <laughs> I don't know. Better hope that infamous Australian contract finally comes through so they get some cash flow to pay off the margin <laughs> loan. Is it, it's, is it that dark? Is it that know. bad? I mean, Baba's, I don't know. I, Baba's off a fair amount. I don't know exactly where, where that trigger would be. Charlie's always swung for the fences. Buffett's the steady hand on the tiller there. Buffett just no zeros, no donuts. A friend told me the other day, and I thought this was pretty smart, that Munger might be the best investor of all time and that he basically like was a passive holder to get to a billionaire. <laughs> Who's been a passive anything and made a billion dollars? I mean, to be fair, he was vice chairman. Okay. He, he, he's on the board. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't ruin my story with these little trivia yeah. facts, Toby. Billy, you raise it, you're rolling your eyes at that too. I think that's fair, isn't it? Look, I, I think Charlie is an incredible thinker. He had a heck of a track record for himself. Uh, I think that Charlie's best investment was to find a truly talented savant that was also a workaholic and let that guy go. No doubt. Said another way, a passive investor that rode something to a billion dollars. I mean, there's there's passive and there's passive. You got to give it like he was actually sitting on the board there. Like if I if I have to if I have to occupy the vice chairmanship of a of a public company for whatever it is, fifty years, seventy years, to I'll do it, but I won't regard it as passive. <laughs> but yes, the point is the point is right. Yeah, he he uh, he's good. He did the right thing there. I mean, look, I I think he I, I I don't think this is speculation. I think this is factual. Like when they were going through Solomon, I, I think Charlie probably provided very, very valuable advice on strategic decisions that Buffett should make. And I think he was probably an incredible sounding board. Like As a you lawyer, get those two to get um, I think it's everything. I think he I think, I think he launched, probably like, the whole trip it was good advice. Yeah, game game theory, uh legal, like all of it. Um I, I think he added his value there, but you know, day to day, I, that's why I've always said I'd rather be Charlie than Buffett. Like Charlie lives a pretty good life. Found Lee Lu too, and rode that for quite a. I don't. What if, I'm not sure how much he has still with Lee Lu, but that's got to be like half his net worth, maybe. I mean, how much how much risk is there really in this Barber position? Because this is like there is. I still think. I've said this a few times. Like, there, it's a genuine risk for a zero. It doesn't matter. It's in Daily Journal. Like, who honestly cares? Daily Journal shareholders might feel strongly about it. <laughs> well, but <laughs> but here's my beef with with like with uh, if you held Daily Journal and you have a problem with this, then I think you had the opportunity to get out when Charlie bought Baba. And I don't think it's a fair criticism to say, well, he's going out and doing things that Charlie wants to do. Like it has never been a secret that that is Charlie's entity and you're along for the ride. And it's never been a secret that it's a bunch of old guys running that company. So, you know, it's kind of on you, in my opinion. This is a big left turn though. Like to put that much money into a Chinese ADR, that's a, he's, he's, He's like, he's driven, he's gone a little bit off right there, hasn't he? No way, man. Think about the question that I asked him when I asked him if people should be uh, uh, buying or studying quality companies. And he looked at me and he's like, well, I own uh, China, the best Chinese companies and you own none. So I'm right. and You'll realize it. <laughs> we'll suck on this pain, Charlie. Uh... Don't. Please don't clip that and put that as our, our yeah, thing. I don't it. want that's going out. I don't there. want Charlie to have pain. But that's what I'm saying. Like he's never been uh he's never hidden his affection for the Chinese great companies ever. It just, you know, this bet isn't working right now. Yeah. And it may work out. It's just like, could you see Buck would Buffett do something like this? I doubt it. 
Buffett said that Buffett said that he and Charlie would bet material portions of their net worth on a coin flip with the right odds. If you actually listen to that statement, that coin flip ends up a zero, you know, roughly 50 percent of the time. Right. Unless it's a, you know, a, a weighted coin. So, <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a lot of scenarios where Buffett looks wrong, too. Sure. I mean, that's the whole insurance game. Yeah, right? I was going to say is willing that to lose that was how I million dollars it from an L.A. earthquake tomorrow. And that's fine. Yeah, I don't think Buffett would do it. Well, I mean, he he's done different. I mean, he bought a lot of Amex at one point. He bought a lot of Geico when it was maybe potentially both of those had potential zeros. Maybe. I mean, I guess he assessed that it wasn't enough chance of that, but I think Amex was a Amex was a was a potential zero. But also with Geico, he replaced management, right? Like he knew the new guy coming in. Like I, I think uh, an error that I made when I studied Buffett when I was younger is I didn't realize the level of control that he insisted on when he got into really hairy situations. Maybe MX is different, but he was never just some passive guy buying into total junk, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know what he did with the net nets. I don't know if he was. That's probably right. He was probably a liquidator in most of those. Oh yeah, I mean Dempster Mills going in. I mean, my favorite story of that is him in the warehouse, and he gets and he draws a line on the wall and says, "If you don't get the inventory below this line by this time, you're all fired." (laughs) (laughs) That's not very cuddly, Grandpa, of him. That's not cuddly grandpa but i think he learned well by the time by the the end of that the whole town hated him and so i think he was like i don't really want to do that anymore that kind of doesn't feel good yeah the part of the story that's not told when they tell that part of the story is not only did the town hate him but he was also rich uh i think like knowing who he is he would do it to get rich but i don't think he'd do it once he's rich i don't know who he is by the way for those that uh misinterpret my statement uh it's all based on the snowball and study amex wasn't a limited liability when it was when it was listed in the 60s shareholders could be exposed to unlimited losses is that true when he bought it that's my understanding but i could be wrong it's like the lloyd's uh you remember that when lloyd's you know the famously the partners in Lloyd's or whatever they whatever they're called are are liable down to their shirt buttons, and uh, they were they were looking at like they were going to take their first real loss in a long time, which is when they did the big reinsurance deal with Buffett to cover them from that scenario. But even Buffett, like he only underwrites a portion of it. Like if it gets bigger than that, it's unlimited beyond that. Mm-hmm. That would have made me nervous. What do they call them? The names names of Lloyd's. Yeah. I didn't know that about Amex. That would definitely have changed that because that was a um, financial company with a big fraud going on. As a tough to uh, t- tough to plunge into. That surprises me. That why would you run a company like that if you can get limited liability? Yeah, I don't know. Back in the day, limited liability wasn't as commonly accepted. I mean, I, I don't know, but I wouldn't be shocked if. Uh, there were a lot of those. I think the world would be better off if there were more of those. Yeah, there was the argument of like Goldman being run that way was probably run a but they're not less public. aggressively. They can't be public as as partnerships. That was what they, they all converted so they could go public. I don't know about Amex though. I've never heard that before. Hmm. There's, there's been a list of the stuff. Something beautiful about a converting to go public and then incentivizing more risk-taking. That's a, that's the nice way to screw yeah. the public guy. Yeah, yeah. It's a bag holder recipe right there, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Especially on something like a bank where you can take money today and give promises back. Like there's lots of room for shenanigans there. Uh, Rudy Havenstein always points out that Goldman Sachs is like a, uh, a levered hedge fund. Until they took the uh, the bank holding company Safe Harbor in 2008, and then as soon as they didn't need it anymore, back to uh, back to leave it hedge fund. 
yeah, it's kind of hard not to leave a little sour taste in your mouth <laughs> watching these up ep- that episodes, huh? There's there's two that we haven't talked about. BYD. I don't know how BYD trades. That's is that an ADR? I think he's bought the Hong Kong shares of that, hasn't he? I believe so. And there was also China Petro. I remember that the ticker's like CNOOC or something like that. He did. He crushed it on that one. That's a very unbuffet like investment too. Yeah, he did pretty well on that one. I think I was like a six bagger. His, you know, his oxy purchase is so interesting. And weren't didn't they get long? Uh, was it Rangold or was it a uh, Freeport McMoran coming out of the recession or they out bought, of uh, twenty twenty? They bought Barrick. Uh, 